calling all aspiring investment professionals. Get a leg up on the competition. Final registration for the August CFA exam ends on May 14th. Register now to secure your spot. The CFA designation is a gold standard in the investment world, opening doors to high-powered careers and impressive salaries. Head over to cfainstitute.org to register. Don't wait. Take control of your finance career today. Welcome to the Take 15 podcast. I'm Lauren Foster, and this is the show where we bring you short conversations with some of the world's most thoughtful and accomplished people. For the next three weeks, we're trying something different, a series I'm calling the Enterprising Investor Interview. Now, if you're wondering what prompted this, let me tell you. I got the idea from one of my favorite podcasts, The TED Interview, where Chris Anderson invites some of the most compelling TED speakers onto the show to go deeper into their ideas than was possible during their short TED talk. And I thought, why not try something like this with EI authors and their popular posts? So to kick off the series, I'm joined today by Joachim Clement. Joachim is a CFA charter holder and a trustee of the CFA Institute Research Foundation. Our conversation spans geopolitics, climate change, forecasting, and much more. I really enjoyed our conversation, and I hope you do too. But before we start, a quick plug for next week's episode. I chat with Rob Martirana about how to read financial news in the era of coronavirus. And now, on with today's show. Joachim Clement, welcome. Thank you for having me. So I've been really looking forward to our conversation today because you have a really fascinating background. I was reading you're an economist, uh, an investment strategist, but in a previous incarnation, you were a theoretical physicist. So that's a fascinating journey. Yes, I was. I mean, if you if you like the TV show, The Big Bang Theory, I was a real life Sheldon Cooper. I did theoretical astrophysics and then found out I'm not good enough. So I went into banking and became an investment specialist. Interesting. Well, it's funny. I, I was thinking of the series. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Of course. The world's most popular physicist. <laughs> Yes. So I was thinking of that ahead of our conversation because it made me think of the third book, which is uh, Life, the Universe and Everything. And today our conversation is going to span investing, geopolitics, economics and life uh, under a pandemic. So I would love to start with geopolitics because I know that you've been fascinated with this topic for many years. Um, but one of your concerns is that almost all books and articles written uh, on geopolitics are really kind of useless for uh, investors because they're written by political scientists who aren't trained to think like investors. So as an investor, how can I assess which risks are important for my portfolio and which ones are just noise? Yes. So that's, that's always been a bit of a problem for me when I read all those political experts. They have fascinating insights uh, that are really relevant for politicians and for political scientists. But uh, usually they don't impact financial assets, whether it's the stock market, bonds or currencies, you name it. Most of the time, most political events don't really matter that much. Give you a, a quick example. Uh, in the beginning of this year, and it feels like it's been years ago now, uh, but in fact it was just a couple of months ago, uh, the U.S. killed uh, Soleimani, the Iranian head of the Islamic uh, forces, and uh, that basically sent a little bit of a shockwave 
through uh, the world because it could have quickly escalated into a direct conflict between the US and Iran. Uh, however, in stock markets or in the dollar or in commodities, you didn't see anything because it was just a little blip that wasn't really relevant for investors. And what is really relevant for investors typically is anything that changes the fair value of my assets, which means it has to either permanently impact inflation, real interest rates, or the growth of earnings and profits of companies. Otherwise, it is just going to be a sentiment shock where stock markets may react for a couple of days, maybe a couple of weeks, and then go back to normal. So you have a new book out, Seven Mistakes Every Investor Makes, and you talk about mental models for investing and how you aggregate different influences on stock prices, for example. Can you talk about your mental model for assessing potential equity investments that incorporates geopolitics as well as earnings, valuation and sentiment? Yes. Uh, so uh, to give you a little bit of an idea, this mental model is I, I have the image of a ball that sits on the top of a tabletop and it is attached to the sides of the tabletop with different rubber bands. And these different rubber bands have different strengths. And what you then do is you start to move that ball in one direction and it will keep on moving in that one direction until one of those rubber bands is stretched enough that it exerts enough force and pulls the ball in a different direction. And then the ball moves in a different direction until another band is stretched enough and pulls it in again in another direction. And so the, the mental image that I have for geopolitics is the, the thinnest weakest rubber band is sentiment. It's kind of every kind of surprise news flow, like the US killing an Iranian political leader, for example. That will pull the, uh, the ball in a different direction if sentiment is already a little bit on its edge. But it won't last long. It's not a very strong force. The second uh, force, the second rubber band to me is kind of is inflation, for example, which uh, happens if so for example, oil supply uh, is uh, damaged or changed forever. And this is something where we've seen it with the oil war between Saudi Arabia and Russia, which eventually led to the amazing, amazing uh, effect of oil prices becoming negative for a day or two, uh, something that I would have never thought possible. Um, and that will obviously have a direct impact on inflation, in this, in this case, disinflation. So we shouldn't expect inflation to be high over the next year or so, because oil prices in this price war and supply war between OPEC and Russia is going to be very, very high. So that's kind of a, another rubber band that I think of. And then ultimately, you can come up with more, but the, the biggest, the strongest and most important rubber band is if the U.S. government becomes involved in it in an outright war. Uh, so not a war against a, an opponent like Afghanistan or Iraq, no offense, but that isn't really a match to the U.S., but if the U.S. would basically engage in an outright war like the uh, Second World War or, or a major, major catastrophe, that is the thickest and, and strongest rubber band and that would immediately change everything around the world. So obviously we can't have a discussion about geopolitics without talking about the dominant geopolitical topic of our time, and that's the economic and political rivalry between the United States and China. Um, and we know that U.S.-China relations have been strained for many years. 
but the coronavirus pandemic seems to have really deepened that rancor. Uh, and it seems like this idea of a, a strategic decoupling uh, is gaining momentum. What are, is your perspective on US-China relations in the coming years? Well, it very much depends on the leadership in the White House. Under the current government, it is clear that uh, the relationship is only going to worsen going forward. Uh, this is likely going to be uh, the, the case and accelerated by the COVID-19 pandemic uh, because the U.S. government at the moment is trying to kind of take China to the task for not containing it earlier. So in the current environment, I would say it is likely going to get worse with more of tariff wars, more um, incentives for U.S companies to reshore uh, production from China back to the US or from European companies back to Europe. Uh, while if we get a change in government in the November presidential elections, I would guess that a democratic president would likely be more conciliatory towards China and would try to repair the relationship a little bit. Uh, nevertheless, there are clear tensions that are going to prevail, most importantly about intellectual property theft and uh, uh, things like that, where China is well known to in, engage in industrial espionage and, and activities like that. And that is something that we will have to address in order uh, to, to have a more sustainable and kind of fair relationship between China and the West. Well, I guess time will tell. I know many of us will be keeping a close eye uh, on those November elections. So one of the questions that is obviously top of mind for investors these days is whether COVID-19 is going to reset global supply chains. Uh, I know you've been thinking about this a lot. And so I'm wondering, will companies now think about diversifying their global supply chains and moving some factories from China to other countries or even back home? Uh, I think reshoring or backshoring, so bringing production back from China to the US, to the UK, wherever, is very unlikely and will mostly happen in those areas where uh, work can be automatized through robots or any kind of uh, fourth generation uh, industrial revolution stuff, which means artificial intelligence and things like that simply because labor costs are so high in the US and in the UK that otherwise it makes no sense. What I find more likely is that uh, companies in the West will try to diversify their supply chains and probably not exclusively source from China or India, but maybe have some plants and some, some factories or other suppliers in countries like Turkey and countries like Mexico in Eastern Europe and in Southeast Asia, where labor costs are still low, where they have an increasing pool of skilled labor, and where at the same time you get the diversification that we as investors have always preached. You know, you don't want to put all your eggs in one basket. And if all your suppliers and your contractors are based in China and something happens in China, you're cut off instantaneously. So you want to have global diversification in your supply chains as well. So you've said that climate change is the ultimate geopolitical risk um, and also that it's not just a local phenomenon that like hurricanes or wildfires, but a global phenomenon and as such needs a global solution. Why should investors pay attention? Um, there is an increasing number of studies that show that 
climate change risks are already being priced into stock markets and bond markets. Um, in the bond markets, you can see it with green bonds, which are uh, bonds issued by corporations and governments with an explicit uh, goal to uh, invest these, um, this capital into climate-friendly projects. And they have slightly lower yields. So the cost of capital for raising uh, money for green technologies and green projects is slightly lower for a business than for regular projects, let alone if you want to start a mine somewhere in Africa. Um, in the stock markets, there are more and more studies that already show that companies that have a low CO2 footprint have a return advantage over companies that have a higher CO2 footprint. And this is, and I emphasize that, this is not because of divestment campaigns where people say we don't want to invest in fossil fuel companies. Uh, in fact, these divestment campaigns tend not to work at all. Uh, they actually tend to be counterproductive in the sense that if you have no more shareholders uh, that care about the environment, well, then you're free to spoil and uh, uh, pollute as much as you want to. So instead, it is the inter increasing integration of environmental risks in the risk management process of regular investors. And that leads to a, uh, an advantage for companies that have more green technologies and work with the environment. So a quick follow-up, if I may. So many of us have seen these photographs of like beautiful clear skies over big cities like Los Angeles here in the United States, uh, or photographs of sort of animals taking back uh, cities. I think my favorite was the, the wild uh, goats that uh, took over the streets of Landudno, Wales. Uh, so climate change may get a bit of a respite uh, this year from lower emissions, um, but it won't go away. So how do we kickstart the global economy after the pandemic is over and put it on a more sustainable path? Um, and I, I completely agree with you. As a former uh, astrophysicist, I was actually uh, fascinated to see in the sky of London, where I live, uh, the, the Big Dipper, which is not what you normally see in the sky of London. Uh, so I'm quite happy about the reduction in uh, emissions this year, and it gives us a little bit of a break, but obviously it won't turn the, the uh, path around. However, uh, there are fascinating surveys. Just a week ago, the Yale Center for Climate Communication asked 2,000 Americans what they would prefer to do to kickstart the economy after the pandemic. And they explicitly asked, would you rather uh, subsidize and, and uh, sponsor green technology and renewable energy or the fossil fuel industry? And not only did three out of four Americans say we want to rather sponsor green and renewable energy over the fossil fuel energy. What I found particularly interesting that even Republicans, 60% of Republicans said they preferred renewable energy over fossil fuel energy. So that tells you that the public opinion has already shifted in favor of these green technologies. And in Europe, the EU has this Green New Deal as a policy goal for the next five years that is pushed through very hard with hard regulation that investors have to uh, work with. And that means that at least in Europe, it is something that is here to stay and that will garner more investments and more government subsidies and government sponsorship 
uh, in the future than it has in the past. So I'm quite happy and confident that after this crisis is over, we will see only more of an impetus towards green technologies. Well, I hope your optimism bears out. Uh, speaking of future scenarios, I'd love to touch very briefly on forecasting. Uh, we know that forecasting the future is tough, and I think it's even more so when it comes to geopolitics. Um, you wrote about 10 rules for forecasting for the Enterprising Investor blog. Um, sadly, we don't have time for all 10, but perhaps you could pick up uh, maybe your favorite rule and or perhaps also a bit of advice for investors today about forecasting with so much uncertainty about the path of recovery after COVID-19. Yes, and especially in this environment where we are facing a crisis that, I mean, the word unprecedented gets thrown around quite a bit, but to be honest, this one is unprecedented. We have absolutely no idea how it's going to uh, turn out and what the long-term impact will be. And in this respect, my favorite rule that I always tell people is beware of extreme forecasts. Yes, we live in an extreme time, but human beings are incredible uh, at forgetting these extreme uh, times when they're over. Uh, during the financial crisis, we thought we might nationalize banks and banks would never be able to pay those high salaries to their executives uh, than what they paid before the crisis. Uh, it's 12 years after the crisis, bank salaries are pretty much the same at the top than what they were before the crisis. Nothing much has changed. And so I, I would be very cautious if I see doomsayers come out now and say that this world is going to be totally different after this crisis is over. Um, most of the time, nothing much changes unless you are in a situation where if you don't change, you are falling off a cliff and into the abyss. And that is why things have changed now with lockdowns to roughly a billion people at this point in time, because otherwise we would have fallen off the cliff. So we basically pulled the emergency brakes and said, OK, now we've got to basically put the economy to sleep uh, in order to survive this. But once we're out of lockdown, once we're kind of at that stage, at the latest, when we hopefully, keep fingers crossed, have a vaccine, um, I think we will go pretty much back to normal in most things. Some small things in the margin will probably never be the same, but I think we are creatures of habits and our habits will be very strong to pull us back. Well, it's funny that you use that phrase back to normal because it's actually a good segue to my next question. I was about to say that the word unprecedented uh, certainly is one of the words that we can keep hearing a lot about. But also this phrase back to normal uh, almost seems like a, a, a fantasy that people are clinging to. We know that we won't kind of go back to normal in any sense of what we know today. Um, what do you think will be the long lasting uh, effects the pandemic will have both on human behavior uh, and the way economies work. So as an investor, one thing that I'm, uh, I know of is that if people experience a severe crisis during their formative years, so between age 16 and 24, 25 roughly, uh, that will impact their attitudes towards saving, consumption, and inflation for the rest of their lives. And what I find interesting is that within 12 years, we've had two major crises now where people lost their jobs and basically would have been much better off if they had a bigger safety cushion and some savings in the bank. 
So I would guess that the millennial generation, which basically has come of age during these two crises, will have a very different attitude towards consumption going forward than my generation, and I'm Gen X, or my parents' generation were baby boomers. Unbridled consumption, and we don't save for tomorrow because we've got credit cards and a mortgage, and that's going to pay for everything. Uh, I think those days will be more muted. Uh, and, and people will save more and will consume less uh, in order to have a safety cushion if something like the pandemic or financial crisis happens again. So regular listeners know that uh, during this pandemic, I've been ending uh, our conversations with something I call the ray of sunshine question. And so uh, two questions for you. Um, what do you believe will be one positive and I guess long lasting outcome uh, from the COVID-19 crisis? And what are you most optimistic about? Both go in the same direction uh, in the sense that I think what the current crisis shows us is that there are a lot of risks that we haven't considered in the past as investors. And they are all going in the direction of ESG, environmental, social and governance risks. And so my big optimism is that this will be a wake up call uh, to think more about how we can act more sustainably, both as corporate leaders in the way we do business, as well as investors in the way how we allocate capital. Joachim, it's been a great pleasure. Thank you so much for your insights today and please do stay safe out there. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider rating and reviewing us on iTunes or wherever you're listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts and it helps others find the show. Also, a quick reminder, this podcast isn't intended to provide expert advice on the topics we covered. If you need tax, accounting, or legal advice, please consult a professional. I'm Lauren Foster. Thanks so much for listening.